Hi, I'm Frankie de Jong, and you're listening to PR Football Rants. Welcome to BR Football Ranks, your favourite football podcast, your iceberg in a sea of football, because we're actually now almost drowning in the amount of content that's going on every week. How are you? Honestly, mate, honestly, I am in my life jacket, I'm cut adrift, I'm blowing my whistle and shining my light and no one is spotting me. There is so much football on at the moment, even I'm struggling and it is my job to watch football. I'm genuinely concerned about my uh, engagement to my fiance and whether or not she's seen me in the last five days is, is is up for debate. But there is so much happening at the moment. It's so difficult to keep up with. You've got, if you're not watching La Liga and you're not watching Lucas Acampos score a goal for Sevilla and then going goal, if you're not watching Manchester United's free-flowing attack, you might be watching the Bundesliga relegation playoff or you might be watching Porto and Benfica. Well, one doing much better than the other in the race in Portugal. There's so much to dig into, man. And we just don't have enough time in the world to get into it all, but we'll do our best. We will, of course. And we're joined by a very special guest today. And I'm super excited about this one. Mr. Jesse Marsh, manager of Red Bull Salzburg. They've won the double in Austria, but also on top of that, an incredible Champions League run this year that they kind of captured the hearts of Manny, I would say. But also we talked to him about a load of stuff, including some of the most incredible players that he's worked with, Haaland, Werner, Minamino, etc., and the next people coming off that pipeline. We did, yeah. He was very, very insightful and, and very generous with his time. He, he spoke at about each of the players that we wanted to talk about. Uh, it's always funny heading into like an interview like this because obviously the first thing you want to do is congratulate him for his title win and you want to you, you want to toe the line a little bit and speak to him about Red Bull Salzburg, which is which is where he is. But really, the the, the, the detail, the gold is, let's talk about Haaland. Let's talk about the year you spent with Timo Werner as, as, as RB Leipzig assistant. And he was, you always get very funny, don't you? Like, is he going to be willing to, to, to spend all that time talking about those players when his focus is, 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 is elsewhere at the moment? But he was so good. Uh, I guess that's the MLS in him, isn't it? I mean... When, when people come through the MLS system, they are just so much more au fait with the media and so much happier to chat. And it was a genuine pleasure to spend half an hour with him. But before we get into that, we've got a few hot takes to decide. And just a quick note for the public, Dean Jones is currently homeless. So he is uh, not with us uh, today. Or he was with us for the Jesse Marsh interview, but there's yeah. no hot take from Dean Jones because he, he literally doesn't have a roof to put his microphone under. Yeah, he's a, he is a wandering nomad right now, Dean Jones. And Sam, something that you need to know then. Yeah, so one of the big stories from the weekend was Man United's incredible attacking performance uh, against Bournemouth and with it the the excellence and the goals of Mason Greenwood, who is obviously capturing the attention of the fans right now for all the right reasons. And in response to this, I actually saw quite a lot of chatter on my Twitter timeline talking about whether or not Jadon Sancho was actually needed at Old Trafford now that Greenwood has emerged. And I'd just like to very much assure everybody that Jaden Sancho is still needed and they should very much sign him. Um, but there are a few things to consider here if you are in that camp where you're being sort of dissuaded by the idea of spending so much on him, given Greenwood has risen. So first off, Greenwood is definitely a number nine long term. Uh, he's getting his minutes on the flank right now on the right hand side or the left. He swaps of Rashford and that's great. But like long run, this is a number nine. Youth football has taught us that he is a sensational finisher and he is a number nine. And it's OK to bring a player in on the flank to start with and then moving gradually into the centre when he's a bit more mature. 
So Greenwood emerging. See Anthony Martial. See Anthony Martial. See lots of them. Lo- lots of players. I mean, even Timo Werner started as a Timo Werner started as a winger, right? So and then moved into a striking position. It's about that maturity of that position. And if you're squad planning properly, you don't decide to to not sign. You don't you, you don't miss on Sancho because Greenwood's emerged. You sign him because Greenwood's a striker. You might not sign another striker, but that's a different question. The second point is that Greenwood is like. He's way outperforming his XG, his expected goals, right? So that is, that is the number assigned to a player, the mathematical probability of how many goals you probably should have scored from the shots that you have taken. His XG is 2.7 and he has scored eight in the Premier League. That is incredible overperformance. Now, he is an amazing finisher. Again, youth football taught us that. His two-footedness probably helps fool the model a little bit. Yeah. But if he continues to outperform XG on this basis... He will be the greatest finisher in the history of football. Okay? That's not an exaggeration. Like not even Erling Haaland and all the greats and Messi. They these players are not overperforming to this degree over the over a set amount of time. So Greenwood will revert a little bit. So it's okay to get carried away with, with Greenwood in terms of excitement, but don't expect him to be pulling off this many finishes from these acute angles on both of these feet all the time for the rest of his career, because he is falling the model a little bit so far. So again. Come back to Sancho. Don't don't let this short-term brilliance and overperformance of Greenwood fool you into thinking that Sancho isn't needed. And third of all is that United have found a formula that really works post-lockdown. And they've they've played largely the same 11. It's largely the same attack each game, and it works. But over 50, 60 games, you need those options. And with respect, like those options can't be Dan James and Juan Mata. The, the, Greenwood needs to be one of the options. Right, yeah. it, it, they need they need uh, they need depth and they need diversity in that in that attacking line, and all of these are reasons why, despite Greenwood's brilliance and emergence, Sancho should still be signed. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a very reasonable take. I mean, also, Jane Sancho is still maybe one of the elite prospects in world football. You know, any yeah. any team that signs him is going to do better. Like, it, it's not a it's not a like a, a particularly difficult model. Like almost every side in the world could do with Jadon Sancho. It, it is, he's that good. Yep. And he would almost walk into any side in, in world football. So to, to suggest that he's not somehow now worth signing because you have an incredible talent in Mason Greenwood doesn't really make sense. Um, no. Also, players get injured and stuff, man. Like, like literally, this is what happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure it was just, a, just a, a series of fans that were just getting a bit excited and a bit carried away. And, and, and those fans also wanting to place that trust in, in the youth system at Manchester United, which has served them so incredibly well over the last, well, 50 years, 60 years, however long it goes back, and particularly over the last three decades. And I get that, but man, Sancho should still be signed. He should be, still be target one, two and three, and they can make it work with Greenwood as well over the years, no problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to move things on. We don't have Dean Jones to do as something that's about to happen, um, but you can catch him and me today. If you're listening to this on the day that the podcast is released uh, on BR Football's Instagram at 3 p.m. UK, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Western. Love it when you do these. I love it when you do these like mental Mental gymnastics times every time you're like, ah. We're, uh, we'll be doing transfers in 20 or, or a transfer blitz, basically, about all the different things that are, are going on in the transfer world. It's lots of fun, and hopefully it will be up as an IGTV on, on BR Football's Instagram this week as well. Um, so we're going to move straight to something that I loved. Uh, and what I loved was Barcelona suddenly clicking back into some sort of gear this weekend, right? Barcelona have been 
sluggish at best would be my suggestion from the from lockdown and and at worst dysfunctional uh, frankly they they haven't looked good there hasn't been any sort of real cohesion in the side they have relied on moments of individual magic to dig them out of, of holes and situations they found themselves in and that's why they're seven points behind Real Madrid in the La Liga title race with it looking like it's going to be wrapped up in, in all but this weekend frankly um but yesterday, Barcelona fans got themselves a little bit of hope back. And that happened because they somehow found a system that managed to incorporate some of the old Barcelona magic back into the side. And the system was a 4-4-2 diamond, which I don't think anybody was necessarily expecting. We saw the diamond a little bit with Ricky Pooch as, as the 10 uh, in, the, in the game before. And it didn't really work. It all felt a bit flat. Uh, this, on Monday night against Villarreal, we saw the diamond introduced with Messi in the kind of point ten role and Griezmann and Suarez ahead of him. Vidal and Sergio Roberto as the sort of eight runners and Busquets at the base. And Barcelona somehow just clicked back into gear and whisper it quietly, but that might have saved one, Kike Setien, his job. Uh, and two, Barcelona's season, because for the first time in ages, we thought we, it looked like we were seeing a Barcelona that knew what they were doing, that were able to complement their component parts into different things. And it was glorious to watch. Now, you might say, yeah, it's Villarreal, mate. What are you want about? Well, well, they're very good. Take you back to Villarreal, who are fifth in the league at the moment. Before the Barcelona game, Villarreal had played six. They'd won five of those six. And the only points they dropped were within a two-all draw to... Equally high-flying Sevilla, back before they sort of fell off a little bit of a cliff. Um, and this is a side that have been in, in quite fine form, frankly. And with the return of Santi Cazorla and uh, Big Frank, Zambo Anguisa holding <laughs> things together in the middle, they've been quite the side. Look, uh, Gerald Moreno, who scored on, on Monday night, was, is the top Spanish goal scorer in the Liga, 16 goals. He's um, a very, very talented footballer. And this Real side just know exactly what they're doing. They're very well-drilled, well-dressed, and they're, they're very creative and sort of do, do what they want. They, they kind of dovetail nicely. And Barcelona ripped through them like they weren't there. Uh, and there are issues with this. They got caught on the counter for the equalizing goal. They don't look that great defensively still. But going forward... They just hit a new gear and it was, you know, you look at the goals, Griezmann chipping the goalkeeper in a kind of Messi versus Betis season from last year. The turn from Suarez that allows him to just ping one into the top corner. The interplay that allows for the first goal that would have been Antoine Griezmann's himself if he hadn't been tapped in as an own goal from Torres. It was just a really, really good team performance. And one of those ones that you thought... Barcelona's season was petering out massively. You know, they could have, we were talking about the fact that it might be the first time that they go without silverware in years. And it still very much might, you know. But for the first time, you now look at this and you think, okay, if they play like that, they could win the Champions League. Yeah, the Champions League was the concern, wasn't it? Because if we if we believe, as we do, that, that the La Liga title is probably gone, I think yeah. Real Madrid are, are too far ahead and they're too good at churning out results to really drop this down now, then it was the Champions League is really the only other major avenue. And you looked at what we saw from Barca over the first six weeks and you thought, well, I mean, you'll probably get past Napoli, but when you meet a very, very good team, when you meet another elite team, you're going to get crushed. That's genuinely how I felt about Barca before Monday. And now you look at it and you think, wow, life has just been breathed into this team. And for Griezmann to score a goal like that after the time he's had, 
And specifically, you know, less than a week after being just brought off the bench in the 90th minute when they were chasing something against Atletico Madrid, when the title was on the line, for him to complete that transformation, absolutely remarkable. It's incredible how much more confident they all are in the space of like six days. Yeah. I don't know how this has happened. And to your point about defending, well, this is just Kike Setien all over, isn't it? I, I was going to say, yeah. Don't worry it's about defending. Ball. Don't it's basically defending. pure Setien ball is you outscore your opponents. It doesn't matter how many concede as long as you can, see, you can score more. And he has the perfect team to do that right now. You know, he has a team which is on paper just an unrelenting attacking force. And, and look, I don't want people to listen to this and think, wow, Jack's got really ahead of himself after one result because... <laughs> It's not about necessarily the result. You know, we saw them batter Mallorca in the, in the first game back. But that wasn't a convincing performance by any stretch of the imagination. This is the first time I've seen Barcelona put together a performance that I was like, yeah, that's incredible in a long time. And for that to come right now in the period where it looked like they were at their most dysfunctional, I thought was incredibly impressive. And mostly I'm just pleased for Kike Setien because I was actually genuinely quite concerned that he was going to lose his job. I'm um, also just a bit pleased for like some of the players as well. Like just, just what, like the smile that Griezmann had on his face. Yeah. Like I've been hardening this season because rightly so. He, yeah. Because he hasn't, he hasn't really played very well and he's been, he's been failed by the system at times. He's been failed by his managers. He hasn't fit in. But that, that ship was glorious, and it was Messi versus Betis-esque. It was, if you hadn't seen the face, you'd assume it was Messi. It was so, so good. And the smile he had on his face as he inspires a Messi hug. Like, you've got to be pleased for these players, and you've got to be pleased for, for Kike Setien, because it's been a really tough five months. Well, yeah. I mean, look, bear in mind, he only came into the job... February, you know, right? You know, a month before the whole thing was shut down, yeah. which makes things exceptionally difficult as a coach, as a new coach, as a coach who's trying to win the respect of a dressing room that is notoriously hard to win the respect of. Mm. Um, and so there's loads of different things going on there. But yeah, they were fine. They found some sort of form and, and it was delightful to see. Uh, and with that, we, we close off hot takes. Now, Dean might be homeless and not with us right now, but what he did do for the rank squad was produce a melon of the week. And so, over to Dean Jones. It's time for Melon of the Week. This week's Melon of the Week is Hugo Lloris. Oh, no. Well, he's had this award before, of course. I think he might have even had it twice before. But his behaviour against Everton really annoyed me. And obviously, they they won the game 1-0, but Lloris went mental at Son uh, when he was perceived to not be doing the defensive work that he should have been doing at a certain point of the game. Um, and after Everton broke away and sent their shot wide a goal, Lloris went mad screaming at Son. That didn't bother me. It was the second part. It's the part where he runs up to him at half-time and confronts him and makes a public scene of it. That is just not OK, and that is melon behaviour. You're literally 10 yards from the changing room at that point, and there is no story. It's done. It's finished. But to act out like that just is adding a depth to Tottenham's miserable season that doesn't need to be there. I mean, this as Amazon documentary uh, that comes out on the back of this season is just going to be unmissable because there have been so many storylines. This is the latest one. Hugo Lloris, absolute melon. It's probably time to get onto our big interview, Sam. And so without further ado, this is what happened when we met Mr. Jesse Marsh. Oh. 
Now, we are delighted on BR Football Ranks to be joined by one of the most successful managers in Europe this season, a double winning manager, RB Salzburg. And if Christian Pulisic is the great American hope on the pitch, then surely it is this man who holds that title in the dugout, Mr. Jesse Marsh. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations. What a title win. How are the celebrations been? So Sunday night was our the game that we, we clinched. And so that night we had, you know, with Corona, it's not just the on-field celebrating, it's also the off-field celebrating. So we found a restaurant that could open and and and, uh, and we could only have the group that has been together. So we have a, a red group and those are the people that get tested every week. And that's the players, the staff, the, the leaders in the club, um, you know, some of the media departments. So that group all got together and Sunday night was a, was a long night and Monday was even longer. <laughs> um, and then we actually were given the championship uh, plate um, last night after our game, we won 5-2 against Sturm Graz and, and then we had another little party with, with more of the, the, everyone from the club. So it was nice. It was nice. That's amazing. I mean, look, you've been with the, the RB structure for five years now, uh, three years yeah. in, in America and then two years here in Europe. I mean, what's it like to be a part of the structure and why is it so successful and what's kept you around this whole time? Yeah, well, you know, I was really fortunate in 2014, the end of 2014, to, to meet uh, Oliver Mintzloff, to meet Ralph Rangnick, uh, a man named Helmut Gross, whom Gerard Houllier was at the time also working with, with, uh, with Red Bull. And so, and then, you know, our, I think our ideas of football kind of matched and our ideas of, of what we think of a club. And, and so I worked in New York for three and a half years and I worked in Leipzig and now in Salzburg. So I, I think I'm the only coach to have worked for three of the clubs. And so that, that's an honor, but you know, what I, what I found um, and learned from the whole Red Bull structure is that, you know, the, the details of the football that we play, um, the commitment to the mentality of what we want to be, Believing in young players and developing players is important and, and being a team player. I think, you know, they even use that, like I, I've had to learn German, but one of the English words that they always use is team player because I think it, it defines really well what, what we try to accomplish here with, with the whole Red Bull structure. So, yeah, I feel privileged. It's been a lot of fun and obviously we've had a lot of success. Jesse, you've been in Europe now for two years and as you mentioned, three and a half years before that in MLS. What have you noticed are the biggest differences in the culture and also in the clubs you've worked with? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is you have to understand the culture that surrounds the each individual team. So it's sometimes how the infrastructure of the club works. It's who the fans are, what the city's like, you know, the differences between New York, Leipzig and Salzburg are all pretty big. And I think whenever you work for a club, you have to really understand what the personality of, of, of the culture, not just the team, but the club and the city and the fans. So um, yeah, learning German has been a real pain in the ass, but it's been important for me too. And, and I think to communicate, to, to get to know the people, that's been, uh, you know, for them to believe in me, for them to invest in me, I think that that's meant a lot. So um, yeah, that, and it, it's been challenging, but, a, but very rewarding as well. Well, you're now fluent clearly in, in German, so that, that's great news for you. Um, 
But even better news for you is the kind of players that you've been able to to work with in your time, I'm sure at all those clubs, but particularly right now. I mean, could you just talk to us a bit about what's the magic to creating some of the players that we've seen coming out of Salzburg? Well, first, you know, here in Salzburg, there's another cooperation club. It's almost like a second team that's connected with the academy called Liefering. And so our scouts typically are finding not 18, 19, 20-year-olds to come straight to Salzburg, but they're looking for those 14, 15, 16-year-olds that they can put into the academy, put into our, our cooperation club with Liefering, and then introduce them to our idea of football, our idea of life. And then I often get those when they turn 17, 18, then they come to Salzburg and they're so highly talented and they've already started the adaptation process. And so then it's my job to kind of take them through the next steps, you know, and obviously, you know, when you see the the young talent we have now in Erling Holland, uh, Dominic Schoboschlei, Hee-Chan Wong, but you can go back to years past and talk about guys like Marcel Sabitzer, Stefan Ilzanker, Pete Gulacci. You can talk, go down a list from the Leipzig players. Um, so, I mean, Ralph Rangnick really put a good infrastructure together to, I think, help build a base for what these clubs are. The relationships are a little bit different now, now that we're all playing in Europe and competing in some of the same competitions. But in principle, the idea for our football still remains. I remember actually the, the Leafering Club. First time I came across it was when I was looking at Upper Meccano's career history. And he, he even spent a year uh, on loan there or had spent, had spent some time at Leafering. I was like, what's Leafering? What, what, what is this club? Yeah. I've never heard of it. But yeah. uh, I, I had a little look and, and that's what it is. So even the guys like Upper Meccano who get talked about as 60 million euro centre-back targets. So he, he's, he's the best in class in terms of young centre-backs. Even he does his hard yards at Leafering through the structure, right? Yeah, no doubt. I, you know, I think he came here when he was 16. Um, and everyone knew what a big talent he was. And everyone also knew inside the club that it was a big get, right? Because it, the infrastructure was being built, but it was also we needed those kind of those, those benchmark players where we could say, you know, you can be the next Upa Makano, you can be the next Nabi Keita, you can be the next Erling Holland, Dominic Schoberslai. So, and now when we talk to young players, they know who we are, right? I mean, after our Champions League run, after what the club's accomplished, what, you know, the development for players. So, and I often, like, I say, if my son were a top talent in Europe, I, like, I would be so excited to, to be recruited by, by the system and by the clubs here. So, um, you know, this predates me a lot of this, um, but I've been aware of it for many years um, and it's been a lot, uh, a lot of fun to be part of it. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to dig in next to some of those players that you kind of alluded to there. And it would be remiss, I think, not to start with Erling Haaland, given the season he's had. I mean, he arrived at Salzburg in January 2019, which was six months before you, but didn't really play and then absolutely exploded under your stewardship this year. How long did it take you to think, oh, my God, this kid is absolutely through the roof. Unbelievable. Yeah. So they on on Austrian television last night, they they put an interview from Erling from the start of our preseason. And and the thing he said was, yeah, I just want to I just want to prove to the coach that I'm I'm good enough to play for this team. And then they asked me after that, they said, well, did he do that? And I said, yeah, he managed. (laughs) (laughs) He did all right. 
<laughs> they managed to do that pretty well. But you could see right away from the beginning of preseason, first of all, he came back early. Normally after uh, when players have international duty in the summer, World Cups, Youth World Cups, national team duties, we give them a longer pause to sort of have vacation and recover mentally so that they can come in and be really fresh and ready to push. Early made the decision to come in after five days off, and, and he wanted to establish himself with the group right away. And from the first day, you could see the power and speed and skill. Um, and then once I got, got to know the, the man a little bit, it, he, he always had a smile on his face. He always had energy. He came um, every day with so much positivity. And then it was just my job to kind of help guide him within what we were trying to accomplish on the pitch and then also engage him as a, as a person in the right way and, and then just, you know, watch him grow. And, and, and that's a lot of the secret, I think, is having a positive environment for these young players, making sure they understand the details of what we're trying to do on the pitch but then engage them as people and make them feel comfortable and, and make them and challenge them a little bit to, to give as much as they can to the group. And the more that they do that, then, then the more that we see development. So it's having a football structure, but it's engaging the person to, to, to give everything they have every day um, and help them as, as young men mature off the pitch uh, more so than even on the pitch. That's interesting you, you say that the engaging and challenging a player because it kind of links into what I really want to know, which is with a player like Erling Haaland, when he scores in six games in a row, when he scores a hat-trick one week and then he scores two the next game, then he scores in three consecutive weeks and that happened, well, he scored in five straight Champions League games and he scored in a six-game run. He scored in every game in October, which included a hat-trick and a brace. What do you say to him after like the fourth game in which he scored again? How do you interact with that player and how do you keep him on top of his game? You on a throne, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's all, listen, the first thing is as a trainer, there's always a combination of, you know, staying on top of the details mixed with staying out of the way. <laughs> yeah. um, with Erling specifically like he liked video right he liked feedback he he you know and so as we were ironing out you know uh, tactically what his role was we spent a lot of time looking at the individual video moments and then saying okay we can be a little bit better here we can react a little bit stronger here we can sprint a little bit harder here you, you need to be in the box in these moments and he you know, the more that they can kind of take the information and then apply it on the pitch, um, and the more that you can kind of catch their, their engage their motivation and, and inspire them, then again, you just, it just, there, there's a natural growth pattern. So it's, it's not one thing, it's a little bit of everything, but, but it's, it's in a positive way, helping them, encouraging them and, and showing them, you know, the ways that they can continue to, to get better. And, and this is important as a coach too. The more that you can give players information that makes them better, the more they eat it up. And so when it makes sense, when it inspires them, when they, when they can see how things fit, then they can go out and play with a free, free head. So yeah, that was, that's, that was definitely uh, the case with Erwin. Jesse, I'm not sure how many players like him you will come across over the course of your career. We'll have to wait and see on that. But in terms of what he's capable of in his career, I mean, are we looking at potentially the best number nine in the world here, do you think? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, and his personality is such that he wants to be the best. He, he works, he, he's one of the hardest working guys that we, we've had here. Um, 
his his energy and, and, and positivity every day. Um, yeah, I mean, and then obviously his talent. You know, I mean, he he's he's so fast, he's so clever, he's so he can finish in every way possible. Technically gifted. So yeah, I mean, he's the type of guy that that has all the tools, not just from a, a technical perspective, but from a mental perspective. Absolutely. I'm going to keep it rolling and move it on to another player who plays up top and who you've had extensive interaction with, a man who's just made a big money move to the Premier League, Timo Werner, 60 million euros-ish, 34 goals this season. It's been an absolutely unreal campaign for him. I'd just like to kind of get your opinion on, on what sets him apart and what makes him one of Europe's deadliest strikers. Timo is a cutthroat attacker. Okay. He's the bloody killer. <laughs> he, yeah, he is a killer. And he's the type of player that wants the ball in dangerous moments all the time. He wants to sprint. The way I describe him is if he goes 1v1 against a defender and he loses that battle, he has no worries. When he gets the ball again, he's going right at that defender again. And, and again, with his speed and quality and his, his mentality to, to constantly score goals, to constantly be a threat, to, to be so aggressive, um, I think the sky is also the limit for Timo. So I, and, and for me personally, I'm really happy to see Timo because, you know, the, a lot of times Germans don't leave Germany. You know, they, 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 they like their comfort zones. Germans aren't very good with being uncomfortable. And, and I had a conversation with Timo once and about going to England and that I thought it was really important for him to try new things and, and to, to not just stay in Germany. And so when I had heard that, that, uh, that the, the, the Chelsea move was fixed, I'm, uh, it made me really happy. And I, and I think it'll be good for Timo as a person and certainly as a player. Um, you're going to see a guy at Chelsea that that he'll score so many goals. He'll sprint and run. He'll always um, find ways to to get on the end of plays, and he'll create things on his own. He can play almost any position along the front three. Um, he's a threat uh, with the ball, without the ball. He'll work for the team. He's going to do great. I think Chelsea. It does seem like a nice fit, uh, Timo, at England and specifically the Premier League. You mentioned that he plays most positions across the front. How do you, how do you see him best deployed? He likes to drift to the left, you know, he like, and then come with his right and then, and then he can drag the ball and go and, put, uh, and cross it or he can come across the goal. He's also really good finishing from crosses from the right side when he's attacking in the box. But he's not. He's also good in the middle, and he's good on the right. I, you know, I think if you play with two strikers, but give him a little bit of that's what we did often in Leipzig. Is we played with two strikers, and we gave him freedom to move a little bit to the left, and we built that in tactically to what we would do, so that he could find ways to to be on the move and then and then be dangerous. But you know, I mean, he could play like a second striker. He could play also on the right. He could play with the front three. He could play any of those positions. Um, and again, he will work against the ball. He will defend. He will work for the team. Um, and, and the other thing that, that is really special about Timo is for a guy who sprints and runs so much in a game, he's always healthy, right? And that's, that's unusual because usually those kinds of players that are sprinters and so aggressive, they pick up a lot of soft tissue muscle injuries and things like that. And, and Timo has been incredibly fit and you know, hopefully he can stay that way. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of explosivity often does breed injuries. But yeah, you're absolutely right. A very healthy man. 
Uh, moving on I was to... I was often healthy as a player, but I couldn't sprint. So <laughs> <laughs> to do with that. Well, I think we, we all have that one in common. And um, moving on from a man who is making his big move to England onto one who has already made that hop across. Let's talk a little bit about Takumi Minamino. So he's had a bit of a slow start at Liverpool, but that's reasonably common under Jurgen Klopp. You only have to look at Andy Robertson, see how players are kind of slowly ingratiated into his sides before they really explode into kind of the full team. But I'd love to know your thoughts were on, on that deal and how it went down because it felt like one day you played Liverpool and he played so well and, and was the kind of talk of the town and then the next thing we heard, he was a Liverpool player. It all, it all happened in a flash. How, how was the whole thing sorted? Yeah, that actually, we had, we had had a relationship with Liverpool here with the club because we had shared different players at different moments. So they, you know, there, was, there was communication about different things. But Timo, or the, the Taki situation happened fast really fast um you know we we received a call from him and then in about two weeks later um the the move was fixed um so you know and 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 i think also so so taki is a very good player right and and i think he will establish himself there but that the, the starting 11 in that group is so strong right so i think for anyone right now to come into liverpool and make an immediate impact will be rather difficult um Taki's best quality is how intelligent footballer he is. He's not, he's not slow, but he's not a pure explosive guy. He's very clever. He, he understands football timing. Um, his mentality is, is to work hard every day and do what it takes for the team. So, you know, and, and they've used him a lot in the position uh, that they play Salah or Mane in, in the moment. And I actually think he'd be better suited for the Firmino role or one of the eights in the midfield. So we'll see how things develop there. But but I'm I'm convinced that Taki will will show his quality over time. Yeah, we might see uh, we might see Liverpool change formation. You, you never know, really. With they might they might move to to a double pivot and use a number ten, and and, and they might see Minamino as a player that can use that with Verna with, with Verna when they they targeted. Timo Werner, I was thinking that they would try and do that and move Firmino into the number 10. So you never really know. But we have seen Minamino play, yeah, three different positions already. Um, I'd started to think that maybe that's not that's not necessarily helping him break into the team and that he he maybe needs to have a stab at one of them or something like that. Yeah, maybe. But like I said, Taki is is so smart, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a we used him in a lot of different roles too because of that. Um and, and we tried, we, we focused on a lot of times when we had moments around the box finding Taki because he was so clever at making the final plays. So, and, and you know, even if you go back in Taki's time here at Salzburg, he, it took him time to develop himself here and, and establish himself with the group as well. So, get, you know, I, I understand, listen, at Liverpool, the, 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 the microscope right now is so bright and strong on that club because of Jurgen Klopp and what he's accomplished and because of how good the team's been. So, you know, it's normal that new players are, are scrutinized at a, at a really high level right now. But uh, Taki, Taki will be okay. Jesse, while we're, while we're talking about Klopp, could I just get your views on a manager like that? Because we, we saw, we spoke actually on our last podcast about how Guardiola is going to have a legacy that, that is across football and kind of changed the way we, we watch football no matter who you support, where you play. And I think Klopp has done that in a different way at Liverpool. Um, what's it like as a coach to see somebody like that change a football club as big as Liverpool? And what do you, is there anything that you've taken from just watching what he's done there? Well, you know, when I look at Klopp, well, I've been, I've watched a lot of football over the years, right? And so there's been a lot of different managers that I think, you know, you could go back to 
Saki and you could go to Capello and you could go, you know, back further and go to Cruyff and his impact that he had on football. And, and I think what's always interesting is how the personality of the man affects what he creates. Um, and for me, that's what I like most about Jurgen Klopp. And, and for me also, that's what I relate the most with. I think he's good at having relationships with players. I think he, he plays a very aggressive style. Um, he has an, a, a magnetic personality. You know, it seems like he's, a, he's been able to communicate with teams in different cultures and, and create the kind of energy around, the, around a club and a team in multiple places. Um, and that has so much to do with what is seemingly uh, the asset or the, the, the energy of his personality. And so, you know, that's, that's what I've taken away from it and what I appreciate. It's what I try to do and what I've learned over the years is valuable is how to be yourself, how to create a positive and engaging environment, how to care about people. Um, and again, Klopp seemed, without knowing him so well, um, that's what he seems to do to do best and, and his and his players appreciate it and they and they play really hard for him sure. well talking of personalities in the dressing room and people who make those team talks their own there's one of your team talks that made the headlines a little bit this year and i know sam has been really really enjoying this and he wanted to ask you a few questions about it i just watched it back this morning uh you know knowing that we were going to talk just admiring it um and admiring the um the way you move from German into English and back into German and then into English for like 15 seconds and then back again. And uh, a lot of F-bombs. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was incre- it's incredible. Um, just talk to us about it, please. I don't know how else to frame that question. Like, Yeah, I mean, you know, so we were filming a documentary here um, for months uh, and it was the first year that the club was in Champions League. So there was a story to tell, especially here in Austria. Um, so cameras were rather commonplace. So, you know, it became, and I, and I'd had documentary, uh, a documented film for my team in Montreal. We had a weekly documentary, uh, done inside internally in New York. So I was familiar with it. And I, and I know that after time it, it sort of just becomes commonplace. Um, at that halftime, you know, the thing that we talked about before the game was we just wanted, we knew that going to Liverpool was a big hill to climb to, to, to grab the points in this game. But we wanted to make sure that we played like us. Like we, we, we were brave. We, we used our personality to do the things that we wanted to accomplish. And we didn't do that first half, you know. And, and up to that point with the team, there, there hadn't been a lot of really hard discussions because, because things had been going really well. So at halftime, it was, you know, we, we had to make some tactical changes. Uh, to a couple of things, but but what was so clear for me is that we weren't really aggressive enough. We weren't showing what we wanted to be, and and in the end, the the, the result didn't matter as much as making sure that that we were our best version of ourselves. And then when we did that in the second half, we almost get the result. So that I'm a big believer in this in general, right? Is to to create a, a process that's not result based, but do it in maybe the most res- result-based business that is on earth. <laughs> but I feel like when we stick to the process the right way, the byproduct is the results. Okay. Then you have the part about German and English. And yeah, I mean, uh, uh, even when I look back on it now, it's always embarrassing for me to watch, watch uh, my, my German. Um, but the, the, the reason that I think it resonated with people is because in big moments, like, you know, we, we all want to try to be our best. 
and and that's what really uh, motivates me as a as a as a was that what I was as a player and certainly now as a coach is is when the lights are the brightest when the games are the toughest when those are all also for me the the moments that are the most fun right and we have to play with that we have to play with that passion we had as kids when we played the game we have to play, play with with this desire and inspiration to 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 do everything we can on the day to see if we can manage we talked at the start really about the production factory that the whole rb structures become and i thought we all we all know that the names that we've spoken about in the past that have been moving on to other things but what have you got right now in front of you? What, what kind of talent are you working with? You know, we're starting to hear, you know, people like Huang Hee Chan and potential of them moving on to maybe Leipzig. Um, can you give us a few names that we should look out for? Yes. <laughs> How much time do you have? Um, Hee Chan Wang, yeah, I think is ready to make the next step this summer. Um, I, yeah, it, it's been linked with, with Leipzig, I think rightly so. We'll, 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 there'll be an announcement, I believe, soon. Um, Dominic Schobuschlei, um is is a top player. I mean, we love he, him. And, and he's had an incredible year. And and you know his 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 growth uh, path, I think, has mirrored a little bit of Erling. It's it's gone. You know, he's elevated himself so quickly by working hard every day and listening and trying. And and so that's been fun to watch. Hudson Daka is a, another striker of ours from Zambia, and we have another Zambian player named Enoch Muwepu. Yeah. I think both of these players have an incredibly high ceiling. Um, we have a, another young striker who's 18 who's just come from Liefering named Karim Adeyemi. Uh, in, the, in the back, we have a young uh, defender named Max Vuber, who we who was Austrian, who went to Ajax and then uh, went to Sevilla and now is, is with us. Uh, we have also a right back from Denmark named Rasmus Christensen that I, that I think has a really bright future. Um, another Japanese player named Messiah Okagawa, who plays a similar position to, to Taki Minamino, who uh, I think is poised for, for a breakout. And then a Malayan 10 slash striker named Seiku Koita, um, who I think could be the next like uh, Dudu Haidara or, or one of these players. So, and, and that's a lot I of mean, players. You missed one. Yeah, you missed one out. There's eight uh, more. There's also right, eight more. That's it. I've got These a list. Guys right now are sort of at the forefront. <laughs> I've got a list I'm working through as you're ticking them yeah. off. Oh, Onguene yeah. is the only one on my list that you didn't uh, mention. Jerome. Oh yeah, yeah, Jerome as well. Sorry, I didn't mention him, but uh, he's a young Cameroonian French centre back who's who's done really well, and, and I think is is potential uh, a move in summer as well. We'll see. Jesse, you're going to be a manager of USMNT for 2026 because all of our listeners are in America and I've had a lot of messages in, in the past year or so asking who, who's going to be leading USMNT forwards and a lot of people seem to want you. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I, there was even some of this talk before I left, right? Um, and coaching a national team in the US, coaching a national team, I think for anyone is a, is a, is a big honor, but coaching the U S national team would be incredible. I was an assistant there in 2010, um, uh, coaching at the, the world cup at home would be an incredible experience. It's a little hard to say right now, you know, I'm enjoying my time in Europe. It took a lot of work to get here. Um, and, and now that I'm here and, and enjoying some success, um, 
you know, I don't know. It's a hard, it's a, I, I try not to look too much into the future and I try to just enjoy the moment, but I would be honored and, and, and I'm very hopeful to someday coach the national team. I mean, you're used to dealing with young talent. There's certainly a fair bit coming through there. So, so it might be a good fit at some stage. Yeah, it would be great. It would be great. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Awesome guys. Thanks for having me. Good luck. And yeah, maybe we'll talk again soon. Well, that was an incredible interview, Sam. And thank you so much to Jesse for his time and for sharing his thoughts. He didn't you know, pull many punches, did he? he? He very much gave us what he thought there. Yeah, very much so, actually. I mean, this was done last week, right? And um, I went into the, the Liverpool game against Aston Villa on Sunday, ex- hoping to see Minamino play because we don't get to see him very much. And obviously, there's not a lot on the line for Liverpool now. And we didn't get to see him. We did see Divock Origi up front. And you can see how... It just doesn't work. Like the, the, the forward line with Origi up front, it doesn't work the same as when Firmino is there. And Jesse talking about how Minamino can, can be that Firmino player, it's just filled me with a want to see him in that role more, to see if that is a, indeed the answer. Yeah. But you're right, he really didn't pull any punches. Erling Haaland, potentially the best number nine. Timo Werner, bags of goals in the Premier League. I mean, we were just sat there smiling, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And 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 Huang off to uh, off to Leipzig, an exclusive, yeah. uh, oh, oh, a yep. big one for the uh, the rank squad. That a transfer exclusive, not one that you and I are particularly used to having. Although Dean potentially uh, slightly more. Yeah, maybe slightly more. That is the nonsense siren back again. And it is time for you to deliver on your promise of weirdness every week. So what have you got for me this week? Yeah, this week, this one's felt long awaited actually, uh, but I finally got around to doing it. I have ranked the top three letters of the alphabet. Ooh. Yeah, that's a good Fantastic. one. It really is nonsense. Isn't a, it? a lot of thought went into this one. A lot of thought. Um, so this is a really serious ranking, uh, a really serious. I'm nonsense. excited because I I haven't really thought about it, but now my 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 cogs are whirring trying to work out what my favourite three letters of the alphabet are. But I'm I'm intrigued to hear what it, yours are. Yeah, it will have that. It will have that effect on you. Uh, so in at number three, the third best letter uh, is S. Um, S is the first letter of my name, which definitely helps. Uh, but there's much more to it as well. It's the sound that a snake makes when it hisses. Uh, it represents money because it is essentially uh, a dollar sign. Someone just drew a line through an S. And I think it has a nice variety and versatility to it. So it keeps you guessing. Uh, so specifically across languages, sometimes you pronounce it and sometimes you don't. Like in French, you maybe leave the S on the end of a word out. But in Spanish, you would pretty much always, always pronounce it. And um, I like that. It, it, it keeps, us on our, keeps us on our toes. Uh, I like that in the letter. It's not the same every way you see it. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, right. Into number the second best letter is A. Um, You cannot spell Sam, Jack, Dean, football, or ranks without the letter A. And if BR Football Ranks is the single most important podcast in history, and I am informed that it is. Yeah, that's literally facts. Which also has an A in it. Yeah, and the letter A is is the fundamental letter that ties all of that together. Then what does that tell you? Yeah, no, I completely agree with this one. I, I think A might be my favourite letter. Maybe. Uh, uh, just, but... just, on the, just on the side, if you draw an A and then carry on with a circle in one fluid motion around it, you have an at symbol. And without the at symbol, we wouldn't have email and we wouldn't have Twitter. Okay? Yeah. That's Which, how important uh, or Instagram. 
or Instagram. Yeah. yeah. A is unbelievably important. A is, a a is, is pretty everywhere. crucial. Yeah. I'm, I'm here for A. What's, uh, so, what's top tier? That's what, that's what I'm thinking. Jeez. Yeah, so, so the best, yes, yeah, so A is a strong contender for number one, but it's just pipped to the post. The best letter is X, in my opinion. Um, I think it's just an inherently cool letter, first and foremost. And I would very much like to be able to sneak an X into, um, into one of my children's name one day. Maybe Axel. Mm. I think Axel's a, Axel's a sick name. Um, it's worth eight points in Scrabble, which is a lot. Um, I've noticed that everyone's always looking to find X. Uh, you can't get through a math exam without being able to find it. Yeah. And if everyone's looking for it, then it must be really important. It also um, marks the spot, doesn't it? It precisely does. Yeah, my final point would be that it marks the spot. So any treasure map you've ever seen, uh, X marks the spot for treasure. Ask any pirate in 1600 AD what the most important letter is, and they would probably say X. And they can't even read, right? Yeah, that's uh, a valid point. It transcends. It's also the close, close the window. It's used to close windows. That's um, that's important because when you have too many tabs open on a regular basis, like I do, um, X is basically the the key to regaining my life and and choices and all sorts. So, so yeah, I'm um, I've actually impressed Sam. I often argue with you. Um, but actually, they will probably be my E might be a little bit of um, an outside contender. Most yeah, popular yeah. letter, obviously. Um, Euro sign. I did look at different um, things. I basically, did look the pound the, sign as well. Yeah, I did look e. at the. Um, this, <laughs> I ended up in a. You know, when you end up in those proper wiki holes. Oh, yeah. I ended up on um, letter frequency um, st- statistics. And uh, according to a study, just on a bulk of text, which will give you just like a mean a mean sort of study or, or, on how often the letter is used in the English language. E is used uh, 11.162%. That's its relative frequency in the English language. That's how often you'll find it. So of all the letters, E is used 11% of the time. And no letter scores more highly than that. No. A is uh, eight, eight and a half. A is eight and a half. I is seven and a half. O, seven and a half. U at 2.7. Obviously, the vowels are going to be high, but shouts out to T at 9.3 relative frequency. He's buzzing, T. Yeah, R is is 7.5 as well. That's a strong one. And H, stealing it at 6%. Fair play to H. I don't know how to pronounce H, so um, therefore I'm, <laughs> I therefore I have to rule it out. Um, yeah, and it's just reminded me that letter frequency thing that of a, of a tweet I saw the other week, which was that um, over fifty percent of Roger Federer's name is Er, which <laughs> <laughs> uh, really made me laugh. I think. And on that bombshell, I'm going to call this episode here. You forgot to say that X X is also the letter for a kiss at the end of a text and, and the oh, end of emails yeah. and stuff. So, so I'm going to end this episode on a love note. And uh, thank you as ever for listening. We have loved doing this episode. We loved having Jesse Marsh on. We love talking about Barcelona. We love talking about Man United. We love talking about Jane Sancho. I loved Sam's nonsense rankings and I don't always. So um, that's it. And we love you for listening to us. But all that's left for me to do is say thank you so much to Sam Tai. Thank you, mate. I've been Jack Collins. Thank you for listening as ever. Please make sure you're continuing to send ranks onto your friends, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes, and they do really help us to grow and help us to reach new people. So continuing to expand the rank squad and building the best fan base in football. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.